Welcome to the Think Podcast. We're going to call this Think Cues. I'm Joel Sedeckes, and this is the show where we tackle impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Now, I do not claim to have all answers about all things biblical or related to the biblical worldview or how to share your faith or how to defend your faith, but I do know a few things. And I know where to find my answers, which is right here. If you're listening to this later on the podcast, I'm holding up my beautiful little uh, thin line CSB Bible. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to start talking. And I'm going to just let you comment below if you're watching this live on Facebook or on YouTube. You just comment and I will do my best to answer your questions in real time. That's kind of what we're doing here. And feel free to share this video with a friend. And let me just give a quick plug. If you haven't done so yet, please like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube and like our uh, like our page, The Think Institute on Facebook, if you haven't done so. Also, if you're watching from another group where I typically share these videos with several different groups that I'm a part of, and you comment on those groups, I, I won't be able to see your comment. It's just the way that the program that I use is set up. You'll have to actually go to the Think Institute page. You can find that simply by searching for the Think Institute on Facebook. And uh, if you comment there, I'll be able to answer your question. Now, let's go ahead and get into it. So what we want to do right now is, is I want to answer your questions related to the biblical worldview or evangelism or apologetics. And these are the conversations that I have all the time. I just had a great one with a new friend in Northwestern Indiana last night, and we were talking about everything from the Nephilim to eschatology to uh, just culture, politics, global events. The reason why these conversations are so fun is because the biblical worldview speaks to an issue. So these are these are the kind of conversations that I like to have on a regular basis, but I want to have them with you now. And if we get some comments, I'll respond to them. If not, then uh, then we'll just call it a day and and we'll delete this video and move on with our lives. But really quick, let me give you guys a quick update on something else that I'm very excited about. And that is the initiative known as the Hammer and Anvil Society. Now, this is a group of men that I have been working with since February. Can't tell you who's in the group. Uh, it's, it's a semi-secretive, sinister, saintly society that is based here in Chicago. And what our goal is, is we want to equip men to grab their piece of the Great Commission, to fulfill the calling that God has on their lives by equipping them with the, the necessary knowledge of the biblical worldview, how the Bible um, answers different, different uh, uh, questions about life and, and everything else. Uh, and then also to equip them with strategy for how to reach their city for Jesus Christ. Okay, we got our first question coming in. This is a logistical question. And this is from Nate Warner. He says, I thought you were having Dr. Boot on right now. Yep, that was the plan. Uh, the plan was, I, so this is the second time I've 
tried to schedule with Dr. Boot. Both times, logistical things have come up, and sadly, this interview did that interview did fall through, which is why normally I promote uh, the I promote the stuff out of the uh, the episodes we do. I did not really promote this episode with Joe Boot because it wasn't it was confirmed, but not like reconfirmed. And uh, so logistically, that did end up falling through. I am hoping to get Dr. Boot on the podcast very soon. Very, very soon. In fact, um, spoke with him, spoke with him last time, and um, he's very amenable to coming on the podcast. And I know you guys would much rather hear from Dr. Reverend Dr. Joe Boot than myself. I'd rather hear from Dr. Joe Boot than myself. But, uh, but that is an episode that's coming up. We're going to be talking about the mission of the church in an age of revolution. And so if you are at all interested in that, uh, stay tuned and I will, um, I will uh, let you know about when that's going to be taking place. So if you have a question, go ahead and share it. I'll, I'll wait for a few more minutes, but um, let me just finish what I was saying about the the Hammer and Anvil Society. So right now there is a secret group on Facebook with Hammer and Anvil Society members. And what we do is we have weekly challenges and we have monthly meetings, which uh, we'll either do in person or we'll do virtually or sort of half and half kind of hybrid style. And at these meetings, we, we strategize and we talk about skills that are necessary to reach, you know, the city of Chicago or uh, wherever, wherever you know you happen to be located, with the gospel, and how to set up gospel outposts, and how to reach key influencers in your neighborhood with the gospel, in the hopes that uh, that the Lord will work through those relationships, and we'll be able to really impact and and win neighborhoods and key locations and cities for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what, that's what we're doing. I'm going to be opening up registration for that again, more towards the end of the year, probably around November. I think come November, there's going to be a, a strong and clear need for a return to the biblical worldview. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to have a lot of guys who are interested in that. Now, it's only open to men at this time. But in the future, we may end up having female cohorts as well. Um, I can tell you my wife is starting a Bible study right now that is women only. And she and I are, are co-leaders of this ministry. And so um, if you want to know more about that, if you're a woman, we have, I think the majority of our listeners are, it depends on which stats you read, uh, but the majority of our, our listeners are women, I think. Uh, you're interested in no. Okay. So if you have a, a uh, question related to the biblical worldview or evangelism or apologetics, if you've got a friend you're not sure how to reach, if you've got a theological issue that you're just not sure how to sort through and navigate biblically, let me know. Uh, if, there's, if there's a particular challenge to the biblical worldview and you're not quite sure how to answer it, let me know and I will... Um, Work through that. Hmm. Okay. Looks like uh, we're having some issues with my mic. 
That's interesting. Let me see if I can fix that. Uh, Nate, Nate Warner commented that he could barely hear me. So, Nate, let me know if you can, if you can hear me now. It's any better. Lucas Giolis is just tuning in. He says he's glad the facial hair is back. Uh, yes, <laughs> it's coming back, man. It's a funny thing about facial hair. It, it grows. So um, I've got my, uh, I've got my, what would you call this? Um, who, who's the author of Pilgrim's Progress? It's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a Pilgrim's Progress look right now. Kind of the old school Puritan look coming back. Um, so, okay. Well, if you have any questions on the biblical worldview or evangelism or apologetics, let me know. So far, this is a really riveting video of me just asking for people to, uh, <laughs> to um, ask questions. You know what? As long as you're here, look, we've got some people watching. I don't know. You're, you're watching. Maybe you're just hoping somebody else will ask a question. No one else is going to ask a question. It's really up to you. So ask that question if you have one. Or maybe you know everything about the Bible. Um, in which case, man, that's, that's awesome. Um, maybe I should ask you a question. Uh, but let's see here. So I want to tell you about a spiritual habit, a spiritual discipline that I've been in over the last several months, even the last few years, that has benefited me greatly. The, the, uh, the, the spiritual discipline is this. I've been reading a chapter of the book of Proverbs once a day, one per day, every day, for... I think it's been several, I think it's been a few years now because I know I was at least doing it in 2018, but I don't know if I've been doing it consistently. It, it's just one of these uh, habits that I'm in that uh, have been incredibly beneficial. And what I do is I'll read the chapter of Proverbs corresponding to the day of the month. So first, I read chapter 21. And man, you just, you do this, the Lord just knows what you need to hear. So, you know, you can read, you can read um, verses like, uh, the plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit. Anyone who is reckless certainly becomes poor. That's a solid piece of advice right there. That's a solid proverb. Obviously, it's a solid proverb. It's inspired by the Lord. It's breathed out by God. And um, if we're going to get solid wisdom for life, we got to get it from God. But I want to just commend this practice to you. If you're looking for something to boost your wisdom, looking to boost your spiritual life, read a chapter of Proverbs every day. And um, I, my brother's been doing this. Parker's been doing this. And you, you know he's been doing it because if you ever if you follow him on Facebook, he'll post out a proverb. And it's, it's pretty much it's every day. And it's uh, the, the bold red background with the white text. And, um, and it's always from the corresponding chapter. Okay, so we're getting a few questions coming in. All right, uh, Dean Meadows is asking this. Do you think presuppositionalism is the only or best apologetics method? All right, now that's a really good question. So the fact that someone is asking me this question is actually reassuring to me, and here's why. Because I have written and spoken about presuppositionalism. I've, I've also used presuppositionalism in my debates and in my, I've referred to it pretty extensively in my interviews. But the fact that you need to 
ask this question, and maybe, I think Dean probably already knows my answer to this, but if it is at all unclear where I stand on this, I actually count that as a good thing because I'm not browsing people not being presuppositionalists. So the reason I think that's a good thing is because I want to get along well with everybody. And so I've I've interviewed, you know, Sean McDowell and Jay Warner Wallace. I've also interviewed, oh, those guys, by the way, are not presuppositionalists. I've also interviewed Cy Ten Bruggenkate, and I'm going to have, uh, oh, and uh, Doug Wilson. Those those are two presuppers, presuppositionalists who, who have been on my show. I want to get along well with everybody. And I'm, I'm glad that it might be a little ambiguous as to, you know, if I'm a diehard presupper uh, or not. The answer to that question is yes. I do think presuppositionalism is the best apologetics method. Do I think it's the only apologetics method? Well, obviously not. Um, there are clearly other methods, but I think probably, Dean, what you were indicating there is, um, do I think that Presupp- presuppositionalism is the only legitimate method. And actually, no, I don't. I don't think it's the only legitimate method. But I think you have to ask, what is your goal in your apologetic? If your goal, if you're talking to believers, well, as a believer, I love evidence. And I love philosophy. I have a degree in philosophy of religion. So, yeah, I love philosophy. So, classicalism is is wonderful. Evidence is wonderful. If I'm speaking to believers, I will talk about evidence all day long. But when I'm speaking to non-believers, I will talk about evidence. Um, I will talk about philosophy. But one of the things I don't think is a a legitimate move is to uh, is to report to meet the unbeliever on neutral territory, as if we both had an equal claim to. Reason, logic, science, evidence, the concept of truth. And we can sort of just uh, neutrally reason. And no Orthodox Christian, really, if they're being consistent, wants to make that move. And the reason why is because we all believe that we have a sin nature. Everyone has a sin nature. And we all believe that the Bible is true when it says that Everyone knows God, but suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Now, among the different approaches to apologetics, there are different ways of, of, of dealing with that reality. How do we deal with the fact that everyone suppresses the truth? Well, you know, we can, we can try to meet them on neutral territory and, and, you know, give them evidence and give them philosophical arguments, or we can get to the foundation of the house, go down to the basement and inspect it for cracks, inspect it. They inspect the foundation for um, uh, un- instability and leaks. And I believe that's what the Apostle Paul does in his argumentation. I believe that's what Jesus does when he's reasoning with the Pharisees who have just accused him of casting out a demon by uh, using the power of the prince of de- demons, Beelzebub, Beelzebul. And so I think that's a biblical approach is, is to examine the, um, the foundations of the house. And I think that's what presuppositionalism does. I'm, one thing I'm, I'm not good with is, is abandoning my biblical foundation for some sort of purported neutrality. I don't believe that there is neutrality. I don't believe that we should pretend that there is neutrality. Um, and I'll leave it to, to 
my fellow apologists to determine whether or not they're doing that with their approaches. Um, I don't know. If your, it was long. That hopefully, hopefully, it wasn't just a sound and fury signifying nothing. The short answer to your question is: I believe presuppositionalism is the most biblical, um, best apologetic when you're dealing with unbelievers. So, didn't always think that. I didn't always know what presuppositionalism was. But as soon as I found out about presupp, uh, that would, that that has been my position, and it's been about five years now. James Whitworth asks. NCT perspective on mask wearing, quarantines, opening or closing churches at this point, defying local governments. Should churches have never closed? James, you're going to get me in trouble, man. Let me take a sip of this coffee and, and think about that for a second. Okay. Dean, I see that you asked a follow-up question. Solid question. I get it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll address it in a minute. Um, I'd like to know your, your thoughts on that too. By the way, feel free to post them in the comments so I have something else to, some, some, some more meat to sink my teeth into there. Okay, James, you're asking what is the NCT perspective on mask wearing? No, I'm glad you asked NCT. For those who don't know, NCT is New Covenant Theology. That's what I adhere to. It's a middle ground between. Covenant theology on the one hand and dispensationalism on the other hand. And it's not, I don't like it because it's a middle ground. I like it because I believe it's biblical. But um, what is the, uh, what is the new covenant approach? And uh, James, you, you gave a follow-up comment there. You said, Doug Wilson would defer to the OT, the Old Testament, and has been outspoken about mask wearing and rules regarding quarantines. How does NCT walk through this? Do we look back to OT law? Good question. Okay, let me just start out by saying this. We, as believers in the new covenant, we are not under the old covenant law. We are not under the old covenant law. The old covenant law has been retired. The old covenant law... Uh, Moses was not fired, he was retired, as my brother Paul Kaiser likes to put it. Um, Paul Kaiser, who taught me about NCT when I was first getting into it. Um, but, uh, but we are not under the old covenant law. That being said, we are under the law of Christ. And as, as, as believers under the law of Christ, we go to Christ, we go to his apostles, which whom he authorized to um, to teach and preach and, um, to, and and give us guidelines for life and even requirements for life, um, and and what we find is as we're as we're going to the New Testament, the law of Christ, the the um, moral and uh, lifestyle prescriptions for life given by Christ and his apostles, what we find is. There's a lot of congruity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and there are some things that are not addressed. As, as Christians, what, um, what, what we have in the New Testament is we have guidelines for, for living in any society. The Old Testament law was a law for a theocratic state. It was a political and theological law. It was civil, ceremonial, and, um, and moral. And that it was a unit. You should not break that unit. But 
we in the New Testament, we do not have a law like that. What we have is a law that allows us to live in in any society under any form of government rule. So the church can thrive in the post-Christian West. The church can thrive in the largely pre-Christian um, East. The church can thrive in the Christianizing global South. The church can thrive anywhere. We're, we're, we're limber. We're shrewd. We are, um, we have, we have guidelines that allow us to live anywhere. So when the government starts making mandates about how to wear masks and, and how to, um, congregate and things like that, we go to the new Testament. All right. Now with all that groundwork being laid, what is the NCT perspective on masks? Well, I can't speak for all NCT. Uh, NCT is a little bit like libertarian political theory. You know, you ask, you ask two libertarians for an opinion, you're going to get three opinions. Um, you ask two NCT guys. I mean, I, I don't know. You might get, you might get three opinions. Maybe that's a hasty generalization. It's possible. But I can give you my perspective as someone who uphold, uh, upholds and adheres to NCT. Okay, here's what it is. First, let me show your comment. Okay. Um, I think that, one, the government is authorized to do whatever the government is authorized to do. Those, those, when I say government, I'm talking about the state in particular. If the state is legally um, able to require citizens to wear face masks, then that's a legitimate ruling. But the Bible does not give us license to grant to Caesar what does not belong to Caesar. In other words, the state... So if, if it turns out that these mask-wearing requirements are illegitimate constitutionally, which is the Constitution being the highest law on the land, then we should, we should feel no obligation to adhere to them. Now, if you want to adhere to them, you're free to do that. If you don't want the stigma... Uh, of you know walking into Home Depot without a mask on, or if you don't want to get arrested if they start you know going down that route, uh, route, then you're free to wear a mask. I think you're you're free to do that. But I don't. But if if it turns out the mask requirements and the quarantine requirements are are unconstitutional and therefore unlawful, then you are not giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. You're actually giving to Caesar what does not belong to Caesar, and, and you shouldn't do that. Now. I'm speaking as an American living in the United States where we have, we are, we are a people of, we are a nation of laws, not a nation of men. So we have to follow the, the law rather than, you know, if Lori Lightfoot, mayor of Chicago, just gets up and says, everybody has to stand on your head for 15 seconds every time you leave your house. Well, no, you don't have the authority to, to say that, Lori Lightfoot. She hasn't said that yet, but uh, I'm kidding. But we would be free to disregard that. Okay. Um, does this, the state have the authority to require seatbelt laws and helmet laws for motorcycles? Yeah, I think it does. I think that's, there's a law on the books and, and that's, that's perfectly legal. And I think if you ride a, a motorcycle in Illinois, if, that, if I think there's a helmet law, I don't ride a motorcycle myself, but you should wear a helmet. I don't know if masks fit into that category. I don't know. I'm not saying they don't. And I, and by the way, I'm not saying you shouldn't wear a mask. I, if the science comes out on the side of masks, hey, wear a mask, whether it's required or not. Love your neighbor, all that. Do it. I've got an immunocompromised son. I'm not out here, 
encouraging people to spread viruses. I think people think I, I say that, you know, that kind of thing sometimes. I'm not saying that whatsoever. We want to be very careful with our son. And, and I had a friend die from the coronavirus. It was a very tragic thing. I'm, I'm not encouraging people to spread viruses and I'm not sitting up here going, you know, my civil rights. But I'm also saying as being under the law of Christ, we should not give to Caesar what does not belong to Caesar. So one of the things that definitely does not belong to Caesar is restrictions on worship. I'm going to say that clearly. I, the Bible makes it very, uh, I think, very plain that there are separate spheres of authority in society. There's the church, there's the state, and there's the family. And when the state starts encroaching on the church, now you're now you're getting into an area where you know you don't have the authority. Sorry, magistrate, you don't have the authority to do that. So when you know when I read the law of Christ, when I read Romans 13, and I read Christ's statement about give rendering unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, rendering unto God what belongs to God, I don't see any leeway in there for rendering unto Caesar what belongs to God. And when the state stops being God's servant uh, to do you good, well, you've got some grounds there for civil disobedience, I think. Um, but I get that from the New Testament. I don't get that from the Old Testament. And, I, and, and I'm free to draw from the Old Testament wisdom and, uh, and knowledge. Every word of God proves true. So I can, I can go back to the Old Testament for wisdom and knowledge. Um, and I think that if you were to, if you were to run a, a nation based on Old Testament principles and law, I think you'd be doing a lot better than what you see um, nowadays. And, and I, of course, I would, have, I would have scruples there as well because we're not a theocracy. Um, so before you jump to some of those uh, challenging issues, let me just say it. I'm not advocating that we go under old... I'm not a theonomist by any means. I'm a New Covenant theologian, which is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum from theonomy. But, um, but yeah, I'm, but I'm free to draw wisdom from, from the Old Testament. All right, James, that was long-winded. I'm going to try to make these shorter. Dean Meadows, follow-up. Didn't Paul make that exact move in Acts 17? He didn't appeal to Old Testament prophecy. He appealed to the fact that these people were religious and valued their, their poets. Great question. In Acts 17, what you have the Apostle Paul doing is this. He's entering into their worldview for the sake of argument, showing that it is inconsistent because they claim to worship um, they, they claim to worship these gods that, uh, that are above them, but they're, they're in reality, they're worshiping them, these gods through man-made idols. And there's an inconsistency there. They also claimed that there was an unknown God out there, which is a principle, which is an open door of uncertainty, which actually opens the door for them to not be certain about any of the gods that they're worshiping. Because if there's one God out there who they, who they don't, um, sorry, I'm going to put his comment on the screen here. Okay, if there's one God out there about whom they are uncertain, well, that one God could be the one true God who trumps all the other gods, and therefore the other gods are illegitimate. And so because there's that inconsistency in their worship, uh, or at the very least a wide open door to inconsistency, what Paul's doing is he's driving a Mack truck through that inconsistency and saying, I can tell you exactly who that God is. And the Apostle Paul actually does appeal to Old Testament prophecy. He, he does, um, he... Uh, well, he, he appeals to Old Testament truth anyway by unambiguously talking about how God overlooked the sin of uh, the, the Gentiles in the past, how God, um, how God has appointed a day of judgment. That's an Old Testament 
Old Testament prophecy. And he then directly links it to Jesus Christ and says, God gave proof or evidence that this man is going to be the one who judges the world. And he did it by raising him from the dead. So that, that he's appealing to scripture and to biblical truth there. He is also citing their poets or their philosophers and showing the, that, um, that because they claim to, to believe those poets and those, those philosophers, they shouldn't be out there worshiping idols because in him, in God, we live, move and have our being. Well, what he's saying is, look, your, your own philosophers fly in the face of having all these idols. You don't have your being in these idols. You have your being in God. As a matter of fact, you don't even have your being in um, Jupiter, who I, I think that quote is, uh, is referencing when it says, in him we live, move, and have our being. That wasn't obviously referencing Yahweh. It was referencing uh, one of the Greek gods, I think Jupiter, Jove. And, um, but, but we don't have our being in Jove. We have our being in, in Christ, uh, in, in God, the one true God. So I do actually see, it took me a little while to see that, Dean, but I, having studied that passage a lot more, I actually believe it is a, a presuppositional passage. Um, so uh, it, maybe not the best explanation, but hopefully that explains my, my view on that. All right, Nate Werner. Is scripture clear or ambiguous about the neutrality of the unbeliever? Scripture is very clear. Scripture is very clear in Romans 1, that uh, 18 through 24, that the unbeliever is not neutral in his approach toward God. Um, they, they know God. God has made his existence very plain to them, revealing it in the things that have been made ever since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes have been clearly seen. But instead of acknowledging God, we as a species suppress that knowledge of God. And that is not a neutral position. And, and you might say that the man is ignorant of God, but it's a culpable ignorance. We're ignorant because we've chosen to become ignorant. Okay, so no, scripture is not ambiguous on that. Okay, next up. Piotr Wierzbicki asks this. Let's see, I haven't read this beforehand, so let's see if, let's see if it's anything uh, worth, uh, or that I'm able to respond to. And if you're looking at this right now, the, uh, the comment is um, blocking my face. Let me see if I can change that. Here we go. We are all parts of God. Well, I would take issue with that right away. No, we are not all parts of God. Um, that's that's uh, panentheism. We are not part of God. God is distinct from his creation. God is present everywhere. He is sovereign everywhere. He has control and authority over all things, but we are not parts of God. This messy world now is true spectacle of ignorance. Well, I agree with that, but again, I think it's a culpable ignorance. We are guilty because of our ignorance. Speaking is not that important as listening to pure devotees of the Lord. Well, yeah, if the pure devotees are preaching the gospel, I agree with that. No miracles, no shows, no gimmicks, but attentive listening to the vibrations of the Srimad Bhagavatam. Well, you lost me there, Piotr. Uh, Krishna Katha, topic about Krishna. Krishna is that God about all preachers talk, but majority of them only use slogans. N nope, going to have to disagree with you on this, Piotr. Um, God is only a term behind which person stands. He's get names and all power. So the way to realize Krishna is, okay, I'm going to cut you off right there, Piotr. And the reason why is, um, it sounds like you're espousing, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it sounds like you're espousing sort of an every road leads to the top of the mountain 
kind of perspective, and that's just not true. Uh, if that's true, if it's true that all religions lead to the same God and all religions are equally valid, then all religions who make exclusive truth claims, which by the way is all of them, are, are necessarily false. Because Islam does not claim to be one of many roads. Christianity does not claim to be one of many roads. John 14, 6 records Jesus as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, if all roads lead to heaven, then Jesus is wrong. And that means that Christianity is wrong, which means Christianity would not lead to heaven, which means the belief that all roads lead to God is false. So it's actually an inconsistent view. Um, and I say that with respect to you, Piotr, not knowing you at all, but um, I would encourage you to give that up. Um, repent, trust in Jesus Christ alone. Only Jesus will get you to God. The good news is, is that Jesus is, is extending open hands to everyone who will come to him in faith. So repent of your sin, trust in Jesus Christ. He is the only way to, um, to God. There's only one true God. And he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is not Krishna. Krishna is a false God. If you follow Krishna, the Bible's pretty unambiguous. You will go to hell. And I don't want that for you. I want you to be with God forever. Moving on. James Whitworth says, thanks, Joel. You're welcome. You're welcome. By the way, when I say these answers, I hope sincerely that you don't think that I'm just pontificating or bloviating here because I think that I'm some kind of smart guy. I don't. I think God's given me a mind. I think I'm grateful for it. But I'm not pontificating as just some smart guy, some philosopher sort of pulling these answers out of the air. Um, I know very well that I do not have all the answers and there's many thinkers out there who are much smarter than me, much smarter than me. But hopefully my answers are biblical and to the extent that they're biblical, they are true. But I do hope that you will test everything that I say by scripture because my opinion counts for exactly jack squat. God's answers in scripture, on the other hand, are necessarily true. Um, so hopefully I'm giving good biblical answers. All right, we got one more question. What have we talked about here? Man, this has been pretty good. We talked about my facial hair. Um, we talked about um, presuppositionalism. We talked about mask wearing and quarantines. We talked about New Covenant theology. We talked about neutrality. We talked about Acts 17. Now we're talking about, oh, look at this. Nate Werner says, don't worry, Joel. I don't think you're that smart. Well, you know what, Nate? Thank you for that. And feel free to start a, uh, a YouTube channel where you give your answers uh, because um, I'd, love to, I'd love to see that. Maybe you already have one. Okay. Two more questions. Two more questions. Nate keeps, keeps jumping in here. Dean Meadows says this, Joel Sedeke's, oh, where's your philosophy of religion degree from? I'm looking to pursue that. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Furthermore, oh, but you know what? You can't, you can't get it from Trinity anymore. Trinity discontinued the program um, before I even finished. So I, I, thankfully I was able to finish because um, I took, I did uh, my, my remaining credits with Doug Sweeney, who's an expert on Jonathan Edwards and Kevin Van Hooser, who is, um, who is a, I don't know if you want to call him an expert on John Frame, but those are the two, the two thinkers that I did my, um, my final papers on. 
I did one. I did one capstone paper on the apologetic of Jonathan Edwards and another one on John Frame and the Trinity. And by the way, you can get both of those. I've published them, self-published them through Amazon. So you can, if you look up my name, Joel Sedicase on Amazon, you can actually get my capstone papers and um, see what I wrote. But I did mine through Trinity. Uh, man, <laughs> Dean, if you're looking to, to get an MA in philosophy of religion, here's what I'll say. I don't really know of a great, perfectly wonderful program that's out there right now, currently. My brother Parker is getting a, a different degree. He's getting an MA, two MAs, I think, from Trinity. And it's not philosophy of religion, but Parker is, is he does a lot of work in philosophy. Uh, he's actually a, really a brilliant theologian in his own right. And he is going to Trinity right now. So feel free to reach out to him and um, he can give you info on, on what he's studying. Uh, would you be willing to do a segment on this with me on about this section on presup and evidentialism? Yeah. What, on my show or, or yours, Dean? You mean for The Daily Apologist? Um, I would do it on The Daily Apologist. I'd come on, yeah. Let's do it. Sure. Sounds like fun. Okay. Last one. Nate Werner says this. Now, Nate, who just said he doesn't think I'm that smart, so we'll see if he what he thinks of my answer. Thanks, Joel. Follow-up. Since Scripture is clear about lack of neutrality of the unbeliever, should apologists make that clear to them in our discussion? What other clear passages outside of Romans 1? Uh, Proverbs 26.4 and Proverbs 26.5 talk about not answering a fool according to his folly. Colossians 2.3 talks about how all the... All the Treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. So to the extent that someone's thinking is not in line with Christ, um, it's not in line with sound wisdom and knowledge. And then speaking of wisdom and knowledge, Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Proverbs 9, 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So to the extent that a... An unbeliever is rejecting the fear of the Lord, fear meaning right reverence and uh, worshipful attitude. And yes, by the way, being afraid of God, we ought to fear the one who could throw us into hell. Are you kidding me? We've been rebelling against him. Whew, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Um, but we can we can fear God while loving him. No, unbelievers have a hard time with that one. Sometimes I do as well, to be honest with you. But um, but fear and love meet perfectly at the cross of Jesus Christ. So I think that's where the gospel comes in and helps us understand that. Uh, but those would be some passages I would refer you to about neutrality. Should apologists make that clear? I think the way we make that clear is through a presuppositional methodology in our, our approach. So we, we can take the issue at hand. For example, what um, you know is Christianity illogical? And we can say, well... Uh, or or um, a debate that I did recently um, about is belief in the Bible reasonable? Now, I, I got some pushback from believers, uh, from non-believers. Believers loved it from the feedback that I got. Non-believers, some appreciated it. I think some had a hard time with it. And, and even today, uh, this guy was saying, I never even addressed the, the actual question. Because what I did was I showed that reasonableness is reliant on Christianity in the first place. So the very concept of reason and reasonableness and rationality 
all rely on the, um, the biblical worldview being true. So to the extent that anything is reasonable, it has to be in line with, um, with uh, the biblical truth. So yeah, I think we make that clear in our approach. I mean, you, you don't have to come out there and say, just assert, um, even biblically, hey, listen, you are not neutral. I mean, you can, I think you're, I think that's fine. But I think a very effective way of doing that is, is showing them that they are not neutral by putting forward the biblical worldview as a consistent, coherent answer to the, whatever the question is. And then uh, doing uh, entering for the sake of argument into the unbiblical worldview and then performing a reductio ad absurdum and showing how it leads to inconsistency and uh, necessarily necessary falsity. I think that's how we do that. All right. Lucas Giolis, one last question here. I'm, I'm hungry, man. I, gotta, I haven't eaten lunch yet. And you guys are keep asking me these questions. I love it though. This is what I enjoy doing. Lucas asks, what do you do when you're, when you're, plain understanding in scare quotes of a passage is in conflict with someone else's quote, plain understanding of that same passage. Well, uh, Lucas, I think you already know the answer to this question, but I know why you're asking. It's because there, we got into it and some others got into it on Twitter the other day talking about the plain understanding of scripture. Now you said plain understanding. That's not the same thing as saying the, the, um, you know, the, the clear meaning of a text. Because my understanding could be flawed, but every text does have one meaning, although that meaning can have many different sense, uh, many different applications. So if your understanding of a text is in conflict with someone else's understanding of that text, do what the Bereans did. Start with scripture, start with the text in its context, um, both in the immediate, you know, verses surrounding it, and then the book, and then um, open it up to the New Testament canon, open it up to the whole of Scripture, do a biblical, you know, if, 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 if at each of these points you still continue to disagree, open it up to the flow of Scripture and, and biblical theology, and what, what has the Bible said progressively from Genesis up to that particular point? Um, you know, when, when Hebrews 4 talks about the Sabbath, you know, what, what, what is it saying about the Sabbath and the Sabbath rest? Well, go, go, go to the rest of Scripture. Go to the rest of Hebrews and find out what it's saying about the comparison between Jesus Christ and the priests and the angels and even Moses and how Jesus is better. And then take, in that context, take its teaching, the author of Hebrews' teaching on the Sabbath and say, well, what do you think he's saying about the Sabbath then? Is he saying, you know, we, we, we must follow the Sabbath on Saturday? Or is he saying we have a better and greater Sabbath in Christ? And Christ is our Sabbath rest. You know, and, and how does the concept of Sabbath and rest evolve from, um, and I don't mean evolve like, like sort of on its own. I mean, God progressively revealing it to us through Scripture. Um, yeah, I think exegesis can answer those questions. Now, at the end of the day, in final analysis, you may agree with each other, you might not. And then you have to go with your conviction. What do I think scripture is teaching me here? God gave you a mind, you know, use it. But but be very careful about letting your system um, interpret scripture for you. Scripture, uh, scripture has to take precedence. And scripture is clear. 
we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture. Scripture is clear. It's we who are muddled. I don't think there's more than one proper interpretation of any given text. I think there's one proper interpretation. All right. Thank you for asking those questions. Wow. We ended up going almost an hour with this one. So that's pretty cool. God bless you guys. Uh, connect with the Think Institute by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. Connect with me on social media. On Twitter, I am JS Thinks. I'm also that on Parlor and um, ThinkSpot. I don't post a ton on, on social media these days, except I, I am on Twitter um, a little bit more, more actively. And I've been on Facebook. Facebook, that den, that hive of villainy. Um, but I'm on there. That's where people are. And hopefully I'm spreading some light, uh, Christ's light on there. And hopefully if you're on there, you're doing the same. This is not goodbye. This is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. I sure hope you heard something that was helpful. Tune in next time when I hope to get Joe Boot finally on the podcast. And um, uh, we've got so many awesome guests coming up as well. So stay tuned. Tomorrow, God willing, I'll be on with Pastor Rafe. We're going to do our Worldview Wednesday. Topic is TBA, but we always do something good. So check that out. That'll be at 2 p.m. Central Time, Chicago Time. And um, until next time, I hope it made you think.